Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Amen. Let me pray real fast and you guys can have a seat. Father, you're good, and I just pray as we uh, speak this morning about something that is uh, challenging, <laughs> um, but that is necessary and useful as we talk about what it means to love people and what it means to follow you, especially in a world that is um, broken and hurting and confused. I, I ask that you would speak. Father, I ask that your um, grace would abound in this room and in my own heart, or that you would challenge us, and God, that you would help me, help us, help us to love you more, help us to be people of grace, help us to be people who live in love. Lord, help our own hearts convict us that we might know you in a deeper way this morning. And be thankful for all that you've done for us. But there's the one commonality we have is that you meet us in the brokenness. And we thank you for that. So Father, be with us this morning. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, guys. How we doing? Okay. That's about how I feel, too. It's fine. Um, hey, my name is Sean, and I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Trailside Church. Super excited for you guys to be here. Um, so today is going to be a very interesting day. Um, parents of younger children, if you're here, I'm going to give you an opportunity um, to make that decision. If you're good with them being here, we're going to talk pretty straightforwardly today. Um, not crudely or anything like that. It's still church, but um, pretty straightforward about some big topics that if you might not be ready to discuss with them. And so if you're not, you can take the opportunity um, to uh, take them in the back. My wife made some delicious muffins. Um, there's no Wi-Fi, but they'll do what we did when we were kids without Wi-Fi, which is survive. So um, yeah, and if that hurts you in the heart, well, breathe a little kid, you'll be okay. Um, so I want to I give you that opportunity. I've actually been very anxious about this series and this sermon in particular. Um, you know, if you've been here the last few weeks, you've seen we've talked about racism. We've talked about uh, a church actually reaching broken people. You may notice I don't have a shirt and tie on. I have a shirt on, um, but I don't have a tie on, not in a suit, um, not yelling at th about things. And I feel like that's a, a great thing that we have going for us is that we have an opportunity for people who are broken and not perfect to come to church. And so um, as we were doing this series and this week in particular, uh, there was a question that consistently came about my heart. Are we crazy? We're a young church. Um, if, if we were personified, we're living paycheck to paycheck, hanging in, and we're going to talk about things in the deep south like racism sex and homosexuality today. Um, well, racism was last week. Are we crazy? I think maybe. Perhaps we are. Um, but maybe that truth that lies here will allow us to reach people that the church has forgotten about. Um, and so I want to lay down four things for you real quick as we dive into this. <clears throat> Excuse me, as we dive into this this morning. Uh, I want to ask you for four things. 
The first is, I want to ask you to please hear me fully. I know we all come in with preconceived notions, whether those lie on the field where they may. I want, you to, I want to ask you to do me the favor and cognizantly be overly aware of hearing everything that we talked about this morning in the fullness of the, of the scope of the gospel. Number two, know that only God is perfect. That this is something that the church has been struggling with and walking through, um, and I'll share a little bit of my story in that. Number three, we have a 70-30 policy here. 70% you're gonna love, 30% you might not, but that 30% is someone else's 70, and so some of this may reside in that for you as well. And the fourth is to pray for us. Pray for our church. Pray for me. Pray for our staff. Um, because this is a hard thing to walk through. Doing church in the South is not easy. You may notice everyone you meet is already a Christian in the South, right? Yeah, just a few that aren't, but everyone else is. So it makes it hard. But are we crazy? Maybe. Maybe. So I'm going to pray one more time real quick. And I will dive in uh, in 1 Corinthians here. So, Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. I pray that as we preach this morning, as we speak, and as we're um, honest about struggle, that you would love us, that you would meet us where we are, and that we would give all glory and honor to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son and his sacrifice on the cross. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as I started uh, researching for this sermon Everything came back to one big question, one big time period, one big moment, and that is the sexual revolution, right? Who knows about the sexual revolution? Who lived in the sexual revolution? A couple people? I know, yeah, yeah. 60s, 70s, I wasn't born yet, but that's cool. It's all right. Um, so here's kind of what happened in the sexual revolution. Uh, everything I've read would just say that it was pretty much a moment where culture kind of had enough and decided that everything that was sexual needed to be normalized. So it's when like Playboy happened, pornography was a normal thing, every kind of free love was a thing, and it became where every bit of everything you've ever seen was normal. So all the things that you would expect now if you turn on the television or a movie, there were big moments like the first time that they showed people kissing on television. That was crazy. That was a big deal. It was like, oh my gosh, they're putting filth on television. Now you can actually have X amount of curse words and still qualify as PG-13 on movies. You can say the F word. I think it's like 30 times. Be a PG-13 movie. Yeah, absolutely. Totally true. Look it up. Things are changing what the sexual revolution did is it normalized everything, all of the hidden parts of people's lives. It said, you know what? It's normal, it's natural. It doesn't need to be hidden anymore. So it was a big fight, a walk, and people came out by the droves and literally changed culture. And I'm not saying it was a good thing, it's just something that happened. And it actually has propelled us over the last 35 years to where we are now. I talk about this often, you may notice um, politics can be a bit divisive. You may have seen that, especially as they lead to a few very touchy subjects like women's rights, homosexual rights, gay rights, activists, everything that you can put under that umbrella, immigration. We, we've made those things gospel, and it's because of how this sexual revolution started. 
Um, I went to, uh, <laughs> I'm just, I wasn't going to talk about it, but I'm going to. I went to a local college this week and listened to a chaplain speak very clearly about sex. And he said something, one of the three things that I agreed with. Um, he said, if I had to give the church a grade on how they've handled sex, I would give it a failing grade. Now, at first, I first heard that, and I, I'm pretty sure my response was like, I shook my head, and I was like, come on, man. But then I really started diving in and thinking about it. I'm a big believer in try everything once, and if you hate it, you can hate it forever. But I usually try everything once a year, and um, like cucumbers, I still hate. They're the worst, so it's fine. Don't at me. Um, don't like cucumbers, but tomatoes I've grown into. But I try everything once. If I'm going to hate on something, I'm going to actually research it. I've read Joel Osteen books before, struggled through one of those. Right? If you don't know who that is, you're cool. Don't worry about it. Um, but he said a couple things, and I was like, all right, I'm going to restart. I'm going to dive into my feelings a little. Like, why did I feel that way? And so he said, the church gave a failing grade. And the more I thought about it the last couple of days, the more I actually kind of agree. See, when I was in youth group, here's what, here's what the sex talk was, okay? Here's what it was. Uh, sex is icky and gross. Until you get married, then it's awesome. Totally useful. Um, but that's because only your spouse would love you enough to do icky and gross things with you. Oh, and it's also great, and you should totally want it, but don't want it yet, because that's for when you're married. And that's pretty much what happened. I remember the big talk, the big, like, moment, wasn't even for my youth pastor. They took us to this thing called the Silver Ring thing. Anybody go to Silver Ring thing or True Love Waits conference? Yeah, like, everyone who's my age and raised in church is like, yeah, I totally did. Let me tell you about my experience there. These guys got up who were really cool, like good looking, it's a bunch of like Rileys, and, <laughs> and they were like, sex is awesome, I can't wait to wait, will you wait with me? I'm like, yeah, okay, it's cool, I'm like, you know, like 12, I don't have a lot of options right now, I'm turning down, you know? Um, this wasn't a thing. And he gets up there and he's like, if you've made a pledge today, you're gonna get one of these rings. And I was like, cool, a ring, awesome. Like, you know, I was, I was a kid, and I was a skater in the 90s. Like, it was, you know, we wore cool stuff, like Jinkos, we had chains. Yeah, yeah. And then he said something I'm never going to forget. It was so weird to me, right, because they gave this, like, hour-long talk, and they only put beautiful people on stage so that, you know, as a 12-year-old boy, you can objectively lust and then go, she's off limits. Um, and he was like, Take the ring, and when you're a teenager or you're in college, like if you've made a decision where you're going to mess around and you're going to do, then I want you to take the ring off and throw it away because you've disrespected the ring. And I remember looking at my youth pastor, and he was just like, you know, when you mess up and you're in charge, you, your eyes get big, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've done it. I looked over, and he was like literally head and hands, like huge eyes, just going, oh, what have we done? What have we done? And I was like, okay, cool. So it's not about what we've done to our bodies. It's we don't want to disrespect the ring. Like that's like the sex youth group talk in the 90s and 2000s. Respect the ring. And even as a teenager, I was aware of that confusing reasoning and that standard for my sexual nature because it's something that God placed in us. And I was like, how, do, how does this work because I don't understand what I just heard and what scripture clearly says. It doesn't make sense to me. And so, surprise, surprise, a whole generation of people have grown up confused about church and sex. 
because we didn't talk about it. And so my, my sexual experience as a child was I was abused when I was seven um, and eight, and then I was shown pornography when I was 11 or 12. Um, and then I lived in fear because my mom told me if I held a hand wrong with a girl that she would become pregnant with triplets and I'd be a dad next week. That's literally what happened in my whole life. You think I'm joking. That was my mentality. Um, but, but what happened and what was interesting was when I became a married person. And as a married person, the idea of sex was confusing because my wife had been told, and I actually asked her about this. She knows I'm going to say this, okay? So don't get social justice warrior on me. How could he say that about his wife? She's beautiful. Um, but for her, she'd been told the same kind of thing, but that for a girl, like, you know, it was sinful and it was, it was dirty and it was wrong. And so once she was married, she's dealing with this deep-seated 10 years or more of being told sex was dirty and bad, and then now she's supposed to be open and loving to her husband, and it's a hard place to be because the church hasn't done a good job talking about it. And the question that she actually said the other night when I was talking to her about this that really messed me up, she said, how do I remove 15 years of shame and open up mentally? And I thought, if I could go back and punch that youth pastor... Would um, no, but but this is a, a a small picture of why we are so over sexualized in culture and under gospeled in sex. It's a small picture when you, when you take an over sexualized culture who is under gospeled and you put those two things together, it, it brings confusion and manipulation and frustration. <laughs> And, and no one can have honest conversation. And so as we dive into this taboo thing, I just want to try to do that. And so I'm going to ask you to walk that path with me and know that we're not perfect. We're figuring it out. My goal is to decriminalize sex in the church, but then also to reassign proper value to it. Because I think that makes, that makes the difference of I've rarely heard people say, you know what I don't want to do my whole life? I never want to have sex. But I've frequently said, I don't understand what the Bible and God think about it. And so as Christians, I want to do that. And that's the same reason that I think the sexual revolution began. And so while I'm finishing talking, you can flip to 1 Corinthians 7 this morning. <clears throat> but it began because there was confusion and manipulation. Amen, anybody? Frustration. Because cultural norms have been so muted, people have been told they were sick and hidden and to hide everything. And instead of talking about it, it ended up exploding. And then human nature took over and made hard and fast decisions based on what felt right instead of what was God-given. And so my goal today is that the church, I think, has been fighting with this for so long, for decades. And what's now happened is the shame culture of that has moved in. It's become another buzzword, marginalization of people. And it's meant to constrict opportunity for us to just openly struggle and talk. To discern what we, the church, should say and, and do and how we should act toward people. And so here's what I want to talk about this morning in 1 Corinthians. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about how sex works and the spousal roles and rights and culture. The second, I want to talk about the idea of ultimate intimacy. And the third I want to talk about is the secondary nature of sexuality. All right, I meant for that to be a little, ooh, so you pay attention, so, yeah. 
So 1 Corinthians 7, let me, um, let me read the first few verses here to you, um, and then uh, I'm just going to read 1 through 5, and then I'll kind of give you some context on why that's important. This is Paul writing in the church in Corinth. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Don't say amen. But the husband does. Don't say amen. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Don't say amen. Do not deprive one another. Don't say amen. Except perhaps by the agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, here's the stuff I need you to know before we really dive into this, okay? I want to give you some context. Context is key. Context is important. <clears throat> Pardon me. The people in Corinth are a new church. It's a lot of confusion about things that are secondary. They know Jesus. They know Jesus crucified. They know they should go to church. They know they should give. They know they should love. So there were three groups of people that existed in Corinth. There was the first group, which is that sex is this wide open thing to be expressed as you like, as you want, which is pervasive in the culture then, which is kind of crazy because it still exists today a little bit, I think, maybe. Um, and here's how that happened. The husbands were allowed to have affairs and be very open sexually, many partners. It was an accepted practice within the church, within the city rather. And the women in particular were allowed to be sexual within marriage. But outside of marriage, there was a crew that if they did that were considered harlots, sinners, and made money that way. It's the best way I can say that. The second is a group that said, well, we are Christians now. We follow Jesus, so we are going to be chaste, totally. No sex at all. We'll be married, um, but only for the purpose of having babies and nothing else, because that's what God wants. And then there was a third that were married Christians that wrote this letter to Paul and said, dude, we don't know what we're doing. This is very confusing. Please help us. Because we don't know what's good and what's not. So Paul writes this. Paul writes this. That's why he says in the first verse in chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It's, it's a question that needs to be discussed. See, what we're doing is trying to continue that conversation. Paul says very clearly, you wrote me a letter. Let's talk about it. For us to act like sex is not a thing or that we can just brush our eyes against it and not worry about it is silly. So that's why we're talking about it. So Paul says, it is good for a man, quote from the letter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise, and the wife to her husband. Now, at this point in the scripture, okay, the church in Corinth is okay with this, right? Like, nobody's going to hear that and disagree, right? You're like, okay, yeah. Husband and a wife, you guys should have relations. That's okay. It's a normal practice. So half of the church of Corinth, all the guys are like, whoo, thank you, Paul. <laughs> Trying to keep it light. It's all right to laugh. Thank you. But here's what happens that's actually really huge. See, remember, for the husband, you could be free. For the wife, you couldn't. 
And so Paul writes, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now at this point, they're like, yeah, okay, normal. We hear that. But Paul writes something that I want you to understand is so shocking to the culture of the church. It's so anti everything that the culture in this time believes, that the city believes, that the the way that people lived and reacted. This is what he says after that. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, what Paul just did there is he just told a huge group of people, like, hey, gentlemen, your practice of sleeping around is no longer available. So this idea, this thing that you say, I'm like, this is how I'm built, this is what I want to do, this natural statement, no longer applicable. You do not have that right anymore. He says, in fact, be pledged to one person. Now, for the women, they're like, yeah, okay, that's all by law I'm allowed to do. See, if a woman had, had actually committed adultery in this time and cheated on her husband, she could be stoned and killed. All right, like, listen, we don't need to hide behind culture and scripture like, well, the Bible. No, let's just call it what it is. She could be stoned and killed. That's the reality of how culture was then because a wife was property at this point in time. But what Paul does is he reverses that whole thing. He says, listen, husbands, not only is the wife your property, is her body yours, but he says, also your body is hers. You belong to each other. And not like in a weird ownership way. Like, come on, Paul, it's time for me to bathe you. You're getting a little dirty. It's not like dogs, right? He's actually saying we are for each other. We are together. Like In the same way, husbands, that you saw your wife as property and something to be used, you also belong to her. And that wrecked culture because that was something that they hadn't heard before. And, and that was something that wasn't normal. <laughs> but that's what Paul says. So we continue. Verse five, so do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now guys, listen, men in the church, I do not want an angry email because your wife has decided to devote herself to a season of prayer. That was funnier than that, but that's fine. Yeah, I don't know if I should laugh at that. Ladies, do not tell your husbands you're devoting yourself to a season of prayer, okay? You can for a few days, but anyway, we're gonna get, that's for our marriage retreat, that's not for now. Um, Thank you. See, y'all think the Bible is is antiquated. No, it's not. It's very alive today, very real. Um, It's old, but it's not antiquated. So do not deprive each other. And then he says, lost it. There he is, sorry. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then this is a big moment as well. He says, now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. As a concession, not a command, I will say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. 
but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, here's the reality of that. Um, that's something you don't hear in our culture at all. And let me tell you why. Because we have all culturally believed the lie that sexu- sex and the act of sex is the penultimate moment of intimacy in a relationship. That your goal in dating someone is to accomplish sexual activity. Right? That's what, that's what we believe. Like, that's the culmination of a really good relationship. In fact, when children ask how babies are made, the first statement that comes is, when a mommy and daddy really love each other, here's what happens. I, I, I don't, listen, like, I, I get it, okay? I'm not, but I don't think that is the ultimate goal of the relationship. Is, if it was, we would have a lot different conversations on the bench with 85-year-olds who talk about their wives and who, who literally die days after their spouse goes because they can no longer go on because they are so intimately tied to that person. Call me crazy, but I don't think your great-grandpa's sex life is going crazy right now. But his love for his wife and the intimacy of heart and soul is. Because sex is not the penultimate goal of a relationship College students, hear me especially. The goal of your relationship is not to be physical with one another. Do not cheapen intimacy that way. Redeem it. Listen, I get it. I, I, when I was uh, in college, I was graduating, I got engaged um, August 1st, 2006, and I had a full year of college. I got married in September. But my last semester, I had so many guys come up to me and ask one simple question. One question. Anybody know what it was? Dude, you excited about having sex? My first response was like, number one, stop thinking about my future wife. I'm going to punch you. My second response was like, I mean, yeah, but that's not the whole goal here. Like, even on Christian campuses, we're telling people, like, hey, man, you pumped about that? Like, you know what I am pumped about? Having someone do my laundry that isn't my mom. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a joke. Wake up. Wake up. <laughs> no, no, I do my own laundry with my wife. She's awesome. No, I'm excited about waking up next to someone that I love. Who, when you wake up with bad breath and your hair's all a mess, and who knows what you've done in the middle of the night? I mean, like, because it's hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get your mind out of the gutter, college kids, interns in particular. You got toothpaste, like, over here, and you've drooled all night. And the person looks at you and loves you in that and serves and cares for you. Like, that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to. Listen, I'm gonna about to be like Miley Cyrus on a wrecking ball here for you, okay? But yeah. <laughs> Sex is a wonderful part of marriage. 
but it is minor in the scope of marriage. It is minor in the scope of intimacy. So how, how can I say that? Because intimacy can be had outside of physicality. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. It, it gives us procreation. It gives us joy and servanthood. But it also helps us learn how to sacrifice. It helps us learn how to serve. It is, it is an expression of an existing intimacy. See, great sex flows from great intimacy. It doesn't happen the other way around. Intimacy doesn't happen because of great sex. And we've got to mix that around, guys. The, the ultimate goal of relationship is not great sex. The ultimate goal of relationship is intimacy and servanthood. And when you and your spouse's souls are in, intermingled and you have fought through so much life together, and you've cried and prayed and fought and hurt, enjoyed and experienced and congratulated. When you've walked through those things together, that's when great sex happens because it is a fulfillment of what you've been building your entire life. Sex is not the penultimate part of a relationship. And if you're dating someone or your marriage, your hope is that you'll just get to have sex and you probably need to reconfigure some stuff today and have an honest relationship with yourself. See, that's why when people say, wives, submit to your husbands, and they don't put the second half of that verse in, I wonder. In fact, at Furman, that's what the gentleman said. He got up and said, well, women were treated garbage. Scripture isn't worthwhile. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And I was like, yes, finish the verse. And then it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, being willing to give himself up for her even to the point of death. That's the call of the husband. Now, would you rather serve or would you rather give yourself up to the point of death for her? See, marriage and relationship and sex is not about self. It is about service and sacrifice. And Paul calls us to love one another and to be given to one another. And then he talks about single, being single. What do you do about people who aren't married or who don't want to be married? Because that's an okay thing. That's a high calling. This is what he says, verse six again. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God and one of a kind to one another. Paul is single. Paul is celibate. Paul is unmarried, and he says, I wish you all could be like me. I wish you all could be single and celibate, abstinent. And contrary to unpopular belief, but still belief, it's not because Paul thinks sex is icky and gross. Let me tell you why, because if you actually go a few verses forward, in verse 32 through 35, uh, this is what it says. I think it should be on the screens. I want you to be free from anxieties. For the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. 
But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord. See, Paul doesn't say you should be single because relationships are bad or whatever. He says because if you're single, then all of your attention and devotion can go to the Lord and the Lord alone. Now, I've heard countless, countless people come to me and say, I want to be more like Jesus. I've never heard any of them say, and I want to do that through celibacy. Okay, I want to do that through being single and not having sex my whole life. That's what that word means. Never heard anybody say that. Never had anyone come up, you know what, like I feel like I just want to really live for the Lord and um, I'm just going to remain single my whole life, be devoted to him. No, I've had people come up to me literally and say, my goal is to be a missionary and go be a martyr. I'm like, that's a stupid goal. That's really dumb. It's cool, like Jesus can redeem my heart unhacked, right? I've never had anyone say, I just want to be celibate, that's my goal. But here's the deal, sex is not the ultimate display of love in a relationship. John 15, 13, it says that greater love has no, that no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, Jesus' ultimate act of death through substitutionary atonement is a big SAT word for you, is the ultimate picture of love. But culture might say that it is. Culture might tell you that sex is the ultimate display of love in a relationship, but it's not. The ultimate display of love is that you would lay down your life for your friend you would give fully of everything you are for the sake of someone else. That's what Paul's talking about. Singleness can be a beautiful calling. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Elijah, Paul. But the full sacrifice of love is not necessarily had in relationship. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, probably the most quoted chapter in all of weddings. Because this is what should own a marriage and own love. If you speak in tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. For love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Amen. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. See, that's what Paul's talking about when he says love. And to say that you have to be married to experience that, I think, is a bit of a fallacy of our own culture. And that's why we have to stop telling everyone that sex is the ultimate goal and the ultimate intimacy, because it's not. Now, sex outside of that intimacy will feel empty, and worthless, and I know many people have felt that. 
I want you to know that there's redemption in all those things. There's not judgment or condemnation. There's hope, there's healing. That God doesn't hate you, he's not mad at you. But you have a chance today to make that something redeemed for the future and I hope you'll encourage yourself into doing that. Because when it is a truly understood gift from God, an object of worship, then it is used to glorify him instead of what we've allowed it to become, which is an idol. Something that gives life for a moment and then fails. <clears throat> now, lastly, I want to talk about a very sensitive issue, a very hard issue, and one that this is where I'm talking. I need you to stay with me. We've covered sex and singleness and marriage, and now this little minor issue that everyone makes big. What do we do with this? Throw it on the screen for me. Not as dramatic as I wanted it to be. What do we do with Jordan and Taboo? No. What do we do with the LGBTQIA culture? Now, this may be a thing that culture has told you you need to either leave or be a part of a church in. I do not agree with that statement. I want you to fully hear what I'm going to say. Our mission and our vision is to bring people one step closer to Christ. It's our goal. People far from, are far from God, but close to you, one step closer to God. Our mission is to love Jesus, to serve others, and to live unified. The way we do that, our methodology is that we are conservative with Scripture, but we are liberal in how we love. There are no barriers for people here. I don't care what race you are, I don't, I don't, nothing. I don't care how old you are, what you sound like when you sing, or how pretty you look on stage. <clears throat> and the same thing we do, or the same thing, the same reason that we do that in every aspect of our lives is the same with sexuality and LGBTQIA as well that every broken aspect of our lives has an opportunity for redemption. Um, and the way we do that is that we allow secondary issues to stay secondary. Now, I actually sent this to the elders. I've had a lot of conversation about this and with some of you guys as well. But if you go into our, um, on our website, you'll see our essential doctrine. We believe God to be, Jesus to be, the cross, redemption, Scripture is an errant whole. And then there's secondary issues. And in that secondary issues, we've been almost forced to take a stance. And what I've seen is there's three kinds of churches. I've seen a non-affirming and condemning church, which is like the, you know, super judgmental, whatever. You want to, I'm not going to go too far into that. The affirming and welcoming, which is we affirm homosexuality, do marriages, and then where I think we are, we're non-affirming, accepting. And that's a really hard line to draw in the sand. Um, we are not, like, we affirm Scripture. Scripture is clear. Um, but we are welcoming and loving because that's not an essential part of you being here. That will never separate you from being in a church. 
Um, I'm not the Holy Spirit. No one else who preaches is the Holy Spirit. Rally is not the Holy Spirit. We have our dwelling with the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit uses conviction and hope. And we will always teach a conservative gospel while loving liberally. Always. Um, When it comes to a very divisive issue of homosexuality, here's kind of the hard thing that I'm going to say. We treat it just like every other sin that Scripture is clear about. So this is where I need you to stay with me, right here. In Romans 1, one of the most quoted pieces of Scripture where we talk about homosexuality and everything else. In verse 24, starting. This is what Paul says. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to start in 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. At this point in Paul's writing, he is not speaking of a certain group of people except for all of those people who have given up who God is for what culture would give you as idols, brokenness, people who don't have it all right. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion of one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, this is back to the everybody, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. See, we like to pull that, whoops, falling apart. We like to pull that scripture out and attribute it to one group of people. But here's where my heart breaks for the church. Because we have taken that and said that that alone is a condemning act. We have taken that and said that because we might not struggle with that, it's not as hard for us and that we can condemn people. But here's what I want you to understand about this scripture. It's very clear about sin and brokenness. And the example given in the middle does not correlate to everyone else on the outside of the context. Yes, it is an example. Yes, it is truth. Yes, it is clearly said in Scripture. But here's the people that Paul finds in common with those people in the city of Rome. People who have given up the truth for a lie. People who do not acknowledge God 
People who are filled with all manners of unrighteousness. Tell me if you might find yourself here with evil, with covetousness, with malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. All the parents say amen. Foolish. For I lie all the time faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. And please continue reading chapter two, because here's what it says. That God is the righteous judge. That our sin does not divide us from each other, that it brings commonality to us. That we are together and we fight together and we do everything we can to get away from the things that separate us. And so do we call out sin? Yes. But do we condemn? No. Because we are not the judge. (laughs) The question of who we are as a church is are we willing to meet people where they are? And are we willing to get them to the gospel rather than the other way around? See, we're not just going to condemn anyone. Like I'm glad no one did to me. No, we will choose to love because love requires action. And we will not affirm, but we will not condemn. Um, Very quick story. A couple of months ago, a very angry young man, um, because I wouldn't say that we condemn or that we affirm, as I said, that we don't affirm homosexuality, but we don't condemn people because we're not the judge, took a week and a half and just went after me. Um, went after my family, said things like that I was abusing my kids, um, that we hated people, um, all kinds of other just disgusting things. And he got about 15 or 20 other people to just destroy me on Twitter and Instagram and our church and leave bad reviews on our Facebook. I mean, just really went after us. And he wanted us to take this hard stance that I was either gonna say we hate people or we fully affirm people and I just wouldn't do it. Um, Because I'm not gonna also take a hard stance on gluttony or haughty eyes. I'm never gonna get in front of you and say like, hey, you probably shouldn't eat that chicken. Don't be a sinner. Our calling is to preach truth and hope and that if if any of that is a struggle, any of it, whether it's homosexuality or whether it's wondering what in the world to do about it or gluttony or haughty eyes or malice or deceit, that sin is sin and sin separates us from God. And there's hope for all sin. And so in a culmination of 18 or 20 emails where I was viciously lied about and our church was viciously lied about 
We stood strong that we love people. That sin is sin, and that secondary issues are secondary. Because the number one thing, and I want you to even go back to week one of this, is that I've decided to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. We do not affirm, we do not condemn, because people of all sin are welcome to be met with the overwhelming grace of the gospel. And it's not my job to tell you when there's enough grace or not. We're not the Holy Spirit. It's not my job to call you to repentance to me because you didn't aggress me. It is our job to collectively go and love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, and not, not be so set on what one sin looks like versus another, but instead to call ourselves to sacrifice ourselves. Jesus at the temple in Mark 11, it's a famous verse about Jesus getting mad and turning over the tables and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers, thieves. And people have said it's because the church is doing business. It's not accurate. The reason Jesus gets mad is because where the people set up, they set up in the outer courts in a place where those who were not Jews would go worship. And so when they set up the tables, what they literally did was they blocked people from worship. And so Jesus says, you are turning my father's house into a den of thieves. He turned the tables over because they were blocking the path for the less thans to worship. And um, I think we've done the same thing at the church in America. And it's time to stop. So some questions and being very straightforward and something that I knew I was going to have a hard time with. The first, does this mean trail side is affirming? No. We're not condemning. And the moment that we feel called to condemn someone, then I want you to also give a list of your own sin and condemn yourself. Because there's hope for all sin and all grace, even to the point of the thief on the cross. And I know that's a really hard thing to hear in church and it's weird, but I hope you'll go and digest this and we can talk further on it because I know it's hard. Should we expect anything in practice or documentation or bylaws? No, not at all. Because what we're saying is not anything that we don't already believe. I'm just being the idiot that says it out loud on a Sunday. And the third, can I truly invite everyone that I lay eyes on to come to church? Yes. Yes. See, we follow Jesus not because it feels good or because we're supposed to know how everything goes. We follow Jesus because he calls us to himself, and that's the goal. I'll leave you this, Romans 10, 14. This is what Paul writes. He says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they put their trust in him if they have not heard of him? And how can they hear of him unless someone tells them? And I'd like to add another part of that, not that I'm adding scripture, but how can they hear if we tell them they're not welcome? I don't even mean sexuality. I mean just anyone. I know it's taboo. I know it's hard, but we must be a place where people can come and meet the Holy Spirit head on and let God be the agent of change in people's lives instead of ourselves. We can no longer let a spiritual step stool of which sin is greater than another 
or which struggle is permissible and which isn't to pervade the mission as a church. But here's what we can do. We can make a difference. We can preach a gospel that's open to everyone because the gospel is open to everyone. And I know it's going to be hard and I don't know what it's going to look like. And as I said on the front end, I know it's not perfect and I've talked for way too long. But the only thing I promise you as your pastor is that we can do it together and we can see people who thought they have no place in church come back and have their lives changed. Because that's what we're about. And I don't know what that's going to look like every week, but I hope you'll be with us to do it. Let me pray. We'll sing one last song. Thank you for hanging out with me and going along. Let's pray. Father, you're good. And this is such a hard topic. It's just not easy. And it's so deep-seated, and there's so many layers of everything that I don't even know how to begin. I just, God, I just ask for grace. I just ask that you would show us grace. I ask that we wouldn't disqualify people. Not, not even just based on sexuality, but based on anger or their doubt or their fear or their struggle. And as we finish this taboo series next week, Father, let our hearts be that there is hope for all people in all things, even if it doesn't look right or feel right or challenges us or sounds weird. But you are a God of people. You touch lepers. You sought out children. As, as the Pharisees threw a woman caught in adultery at your feet, showed her grace and mercy and called her to go and sin no more. And so, Father, I just pray for our own hearts as we do that, Lord, that, that you would help us discern what that means and looks like, even when it's not easy. We just want to love you better, Jesus. Help us to do that. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person, or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.